Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. And this week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, Kimberly Long, and Joy McKnight. Hello, Kimberly and Joy. Hello. Hello. Hi. I love this, a full house. This will be lots of fun. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. So we're going to start right at the moment now. Our, our loyal audience will know last week was a Top 1000 Bank Takeover uh, edition with the lovely John Everington and Barbara Pianese. But we are continuing our global coverage of the Globe's Top 1000 Banks uh, with a story from our very own Kimberly Long. And so this is on the website right now. China's banks forced to learn new operational rules. Um, I could read through some of um, through some of the story here. The, the hold China's banks maintain on the global banking sector is clear from the top 1,000 World Bank's ranking as Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, China Construction Bank, Agricultural Bank of China, and Bank of China keep their top four places for another year. While the size and scale of these banks is undisputed, it is the number of Chinese banks climbing up the ranking that will set the tone for years to come. Why don't you talk us through some of the other points from this article? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting time for the Chinese banks, because like you say, the the hold they have in the top 1,000 is still just undisputed. They're still huge. They are massive in terms of tier one capital, even though we are seeing them decline slightly because of the strong dollar. But I mean, when you look kind of more broadly about the Chinese banks, it's quite interesting because we're seeing like the mega banks at the top really taking up so much of the market share. But if you look further kind of down the the table and further across China, you know, there's 4,000 banks across the whole country and some of them are finding it really difficult now, you know, we're seeing a lot of the capital being focused on these larger institutions and some of the smaller regions, some of the poorer regions in China are struggling as well with debt, which is really filtering through into the banking system as well. So what we're probably going to see in the future, I think, is some of these smaller banks either collapsing which is not what is wanted or we're seeing probably more kind of consolidation between these smaller banks which mm-hmm. is kind of a trend i think we're seeing in other countries as well but i was about to say it sounds like you're talking about the u.s as yeah, well. yeah <laughs> i mean it's something you see in japan as well but you know it's it kind of shows this kind of two stories i think in china there's like that kind of huge growth success story that everyone kind of thinks of but also there is another side of things in more kind of the heavy industry based regions where you know big plants big you know coal mining etc closing down which is having an impact kind of Mm. across that whole region Mm -hmm. so it's it's a really interesting kind of split that we're seeing kind of between the banks um but then also as well you know there is rules around changes in regulation you know there was a complete overhaul of the regulatory body in china as well um in the last year which is kind of filtering through to that the needing to be a bit more nimble in how they respond to the expectations of the regulators now. And also, as some of the larger banks are looking to grow more internationally, they're also having to think about what the global regulators want from them as well. So there's kind of a two-pronged approach there, really, for the banks in terms of regulation, which is, again, kind of causing some some difficulties, I think, for them. But overall, you know, they really want to present this picture of 
you know, China's economy is doing good, things like that. The banks is doing good. But really, I think underneath the surface, there's a bit of tension and a few issues that are bubbling under. But I also think the, you know, the growth in the Chinese economy has slowed down, which yeah. has had that impact on mm. the banks as well. Um, and so it's not a completely rosy picture. It's not. No, but I think um, when I was doing my interviews, mm. as Ginny Yan from ICBC Standard Bank, an economist I speak to a lot for these stories because she has really great insight. And one of the comments that she made to me was around this kind of almost outside of China. There's still this expectation of when will China go back to this kind of 12% whatever double digit growth rate. Whereas she's saying that almost she perceives it as the expectation of the country now is like, well, actually, those days are gone. You know, we are aiming for 5% growth, which 5% growth in China terms is still huge mm. compared to the rest of the world, which is struggling with high interest rates. You know, talks about recession in some countries. If China's still looking to get 5% growth, I mean, that's still incredible. Mm. Interesting. So, I mean, kind of looking, as I mentioned before, it sounds like, you know, you're t there are other parts of the globe that are, mm. are suffering some of the things that you talked about. So the next story on our list is our data bank story, which is from Barbara Pianese, which is UK banks face dropping deposits. So the performance of major UK banks should soften in 2023 after reporting strong results as funding costs rise, according to a report from Fitch ratings. So the, the, the article says this year, higher funding costs will become more visible following ongoing shifts from low-cost current accounts to higher yield term deposits. In May, UK non-financial businesses deposited $9.8 billion uh, with, no, pounds actually, with banks and building societies uh, in all currencies, according to data from the Bank of England. These were the first net deposits from the UK non-financial businesses since August 2022. The effective rate on new time deposits rose significantly from 3.7% to 3.94% during the month. So UK banks facing the downturn as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting. And Barbara also surfaced this as a global trend mm. as well in her write-up in the top 1,000, which is the, the fact that, yes, net interest income is expanding, right? But at the same time, the, the cost the interest expenses is actually rising at a much faster rate. And what we've seen, what she found, is that also the retail deposits were slightly more sticky. Um, and this is all 2022 results, but the retail deposits across the globe were more sticky, but the corporate deposits were actually the ones that were at risk of flight. So it's interesting that in actual fact that might have turned around a little bit in the UK um, this, you know, this month. And things and again like you know as the interest rates rise and as the banks pass on those interest rate rises then of course that's going to attract more deposits but we'll see how that actually plays out in 2023. Mm. So as you know there are lots of great stories um, updated daily on thebanker.com but we are now leaving thebanker.com I know it's very hard but we are we have our nose to everything that's going on in financial services and banking so this we are staying in the UK uh, so this week uh, Jeremy Hunt the UK Chancellor announced a series of planned reforms in his annual Mansion House speak. Uh, speech. So these were aimed uh, making it easier for small companies to raise money and help revitalize the UK stock market and the economy. And one of the biggest things I've seen commented on this is their proposals to scrap the MIFID II rules around research on smaller listed companies, which I know was a bit of a um, 
uh, a bit of a bugbear for a number of years uh, for um, for uh, re research houses and um, smaller listed companies. Now, the editorial board of the FT has called this a pragmatic but not a bold plan. The Mansion House speak uh, speech. I've got to talk, darling. Mm -hmm. The Mansion House speech makes small inroads into Britain's broad growth problems. So, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to comment on the whole speech, or do you want to just focus on Mifid Two? I love Mifid Two. Yeah, <laughs> well, you love that. You love acronyms. Um, so but also, about. I just wonder, like in terms of what happened, right? In under Mifid Two, is that they unbundled mm. what used to be sort of a hidden cost within the fees to surface what you know clients were paying for in terms of research etc is it is it good to rebundle that you know aren't we going for more transparency mm. in terms of fees that, that the uh, you know the investment banks charge and others charge for that kind of research because to me then that hides you know exactly what yeah. is going on I don't know what you And think. I think well I mean I cuz I I I worked with a startup a few years ago that was specifically around research for smaller listed companies responding to the the MIFID 2 rules so and there was you know there there has been a lot of um talk about smaller listed companies not getting the research mm. that that they that they they need so I mean what if this is supposed to be better for small companies how is rebundling the research going to give them more I don't know how that's going to work, why that's mm. a pragmatic approach. Yeah, well, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> I, that's what I wonder, too. And yeah. I guess, you know, having it priced, se priced separately means that, A, you have visibility over it, mm. but also maybe the banks feel they can charge more money and then they don't have the, you know, that flexibility to mm. uh, sort of charge more in, it, yeah, into the account of taking into account the smaller companies, mm. etc. There was a comment I get sent in, in, in an email from Daniel Pinto, who's chief executive and founding partner of Stanhope Capital Group, and he said, um, the measures announced today by the Chancellor are going in the right direction, but they're just a first step. And he actually comments, I'm pleased to see certain elements of the MIFID rules pertaining to equity research repealed, as this should make a difference to whether small and mid-cap companies want to list in London or elsewhere. So seems to be people are happy with the, the mm. feeling. It's interesting, but I think the other thing that uh, uh, Chancellor Hunt said was around the plans for the large defined benefit pensions to invest 5% mm -hmm. yep. of their assets in private equity and early stage companies. Um, a, it's, you know, you would think, oh, that's a good thing in terms that it unlocks, you know, a lot of money. But I also wonder what the pension funds are really thinking about that because, and it wasn't a directive in the sense like they didn't say this is what we're doing. They, I think it's still under discussion, but it does impact their fiduciary, you know, uh, responsibilities, etc. To to actually have that mandated. So again, mm. how does that actually work uh, in in real life? Uh, you know, and I, I'm wondering what the pension funds are thinking about that as well. What did they did they ask for this? Is this something the pension funds are looking for to to have more diversity in their investments? I don't know actually, but mm. I wouldn't think so. <laughs> I think the whole the, answer I think is the on a postcard, please. Yeah. Pension funds send <laughs> to thebanker.com. But I think the reason that this is this has been announced is again to to support that early stage. Companies, right, and to get money funneling through to them, I think that's the problem they're trying to solve, not a specifically a pension fund problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an, I, I I often think I mean this has been going on for about fifteen years in London. I mean, making London that 
Center for Early Stage Companies mm. and, and fintech startups. And I remember, I think when Ron Khalifa came out with the mm. Khalifa Report, he said, uh, the UK does not have a startup problem. It has a scale-up problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but a lot of yeah. countries have that problem. Mm. Um, Canada has that problem, <laughs> uh, as I'll just throw in there. Um, but also, um, you know, that's why then a lot of companies are go to the States mm. for that kind of scale-up mm. uh, situation. But the other thing I wonder about is something they've talked about for a long time, which is also the talent, you know, like the whole thing around... Brexit and sort of making it less easy for people to come to the UK. I think that's, you know, that's not mentioned in his speech. Mm -mm. It has been discussed before, but mm. I think that is... I don't think the Tories are ever going to mention the B word again. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's that's another thing that, uh, mm. that they should be thinking about. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on, and I do apologize, but we're going to be talking about central bank digital currencies. <laughs> it's keeping with tradition. Topic. We will every time. So there's a couple of reports that came out. So there was a uh, Bank for International Settlement, uh, mm. Settlements paper that came out um, uh, this week saying central bank interest in uh, CBDCs shows no sign of waning. So let me see here. Um, the explanation of central banks in the digital currencies shows no sign of cooling with 15 retail and nine wholesale CBDCs expected to enter circulation by the end of the decade, according to new data from BIS. Um, so they surveyed about 86 central banks for this survey. Um, it's interesting, the, you know, we talked about this a, a bit, so that there was another story here about the, um, just as evidence of this, the UK government has opened consultations on the introduction of a digital securities sandbox to mm -hmm. test new market infrastructure for digital assets. And we've, we've talked about this a lot on the show. Um, you know, at, at, I think at EBA Day a few a few weeks ago, the, the panel that I hosted on CBDCs, they kind of had that 2030 date, end of the decade predict, uh, prediction for both wholesale and, and retail currencies. And the question always comes up about why we need these at all. But mm. I think this is, you know, maybe central banks just really like experimenting with things. And cool stuff. I've said this before. <laughs> this <But is> yes, <laughs> yes, I'm sure they do. Mm. But it's also taking the whole money system to a different, or mm -hmm. to like, you know, modernizing the whole money system, which is, I think, that's why they're experimenting. That's why they're interested in it, etc. Uh, Kim, I'll let you come in if you. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about the conversations I've had about like CBDCs, and it'd be interesting, like those 86 central banks, like which central banks they are, just as a curiosity, really. Um. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to when I was at the ADB meeting in May and I was speaking to the central bank governor of South Korea and I was asking him around CBDCs and he was saying that they have the approach of kind of watching what everybody else is doing before they're going to make any movements. And he kind of made the comment to me around the the VHS versus Betamax, which is like, you know, for our younger listeners, they are cassette tapes used to watch films in the past. But that kind of, they don't want to be the first mover and then find that they've taken the wrong avenue with this and they've implemented the wrong infrastructure the one that hasn't been taken up globally and then having to unpick all that and you know this is South Korea this is a very innovative leading global economy and they're kind of taking the back seat a little bit to wait and see what everybody else does so but I but thought I that was quite interesting yeah but I do think that's why the the BIS innovation hub etc is so important mm. because it's actually pulling together and also a lot of the experiments that have been going on actually is pulling together the central banks from mm. around the world and from different countries mm. to try and get people to move at the same 
relatively at the same time, mm. etc., and doing these experiments together so that they can learn from each other. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether the U.S. Federal Reserve was one of the 86. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I doubt it. I doubt it. No? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that would cause exactly, a lot of trouble. But they are definitely doing experiments. Mm. I guess the other thing is, back to your point about why we need it, mm. I think in that paper, the BIS um, uh, paper actually talks a little bit also about like the difference between retail and wholesale CBDC and then the reason for retail uh, around financial inclusion um, and, uh, you know, and connecting the faster payment systems mm -hmm. in all these different countries, et cetera, which I thought was quite interesting. However, I was on a <laughs> I was at an event, Women's World Banking event in Mumbai in India, and we had someone from the innovation hub of the Reserve Bank of India, RBI, mm. Um, and they were very, they, they just didn't believe that the CBDC itself is actually going to in, in, uh, actually improve financial inclusion, okay. mm. which I thought was, and everyone was like, oh, no, oh, mm. no, mm. which was quite interesting. But I think it also depends on the, the approach and what, you know, how you make that work. And mm. what you're really trying to do. Yeah. And, yeah. I think it's interesting as you say around financial inclusion aspect, like what is it ultimately that they want to achieve with the C B D C as well? You know, I mean I think from the if you look at China, like they were just really trying to, in my view, disrupt what was happening with kind of the Alipay and the WeChat pay, kind of the private digital payment methods. They were trying to kind of get a, a slice into that. And I don't think the financial inclusion question ever really came up there. So it's interesting that that's like the other avenue that's been taken with this, I think there's, there's, there needs to be some decision as well over what we actually going to use this for. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know this isn't strictly uh, central bank digital currencies, but whenever people in the crypto world bring up financial inclusion, I just tune out completely because I think it's a complete crock. I don't think that's anyone's intention with crypto. Anyway, I will say that again. Liz Lumley, quote me. But the... Um, <laughs> Thanks, I'm well, actually. I'm well. Um, so anyway, the the the, uh, the consultation for the um, UK government sandbox on digital assets closes on the 22nd of August, 2023. And we're going into, I'm going to get more and more irritated now. <sighs> Everyone's favorite fintech company, Revolut, has announced uh, that, well, it has found out that they lost about $20 million to criminals exploiting payment loopholes in the U.S. So basically, uh, they've expanded into the U.S. and there's a loophole, um, the way payments work, where uh, they criminal gangs encouraged people to buy luxury items. And then, of course, they didn't have enough funds and it would get rejected. And then the, the merchant would then refund the money. And in that period of time between realizing that they shouldn't have been refunded the money, they encourage people to go to ATM and then take the money out, mm. right? So this is a peculiar peculiarity of the U.S. antiquated payment system. I can say that I'm American. Um, now, oh. I, I have on my notes here, hold me back, girls, hold me back. <laughs> um, growth is a difficult thing for startups. And one of the things you need to... Uh, examine when I was at Startup Bootcamp, we ran a, a session called "Just Because It Works in Belgium," right? And it was a guy stood up and he had a startup in Belgium and he expanded to Germany and completely failed. And this this idea that your product will work exactly the same in another country, and what you need to do is you need to research 
examine, comply, actually put some effort in outside of growth. You need to do that no matter who you are, Revolut, Wise, Barclays, anyone. Um, and I think this is just another evidence that um, Revolut just doesn't put in the work needed to match its growth ambitions. I guess so, but it's also about, you know, tr that big trying to expand mm. as fast as possible, which mm. is, what, yeah. you know, that growth story that a lot of fintechs... Growth at any cost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think that's the thing from the get-go, actually, that you that they're not baking in compliance uh, from the outset. Mm. And because, okay, so you, you're testing something, you, you go quickly from testing to actually having a product in the market and expanding. But the thing is, you don't know at the outset whether that's going to work or not. So you don't put in the extra effort to test everything in the compliance sense. You're just testing the actual product. But then it goes, it can move so fast. And so I can understand <laughs> that, you know, that growth trajectory and what you're trying to do. But really, you have to bake in that compliance mm. from the outset. How many more lessons are they going to learn? Well, yeah, yeah, they're not going to learn. I don't think they're learning. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, they have to bake it in from the very get-go. But that adds a huge amount of cost. Right. So if you're trying to be nimble, if you're trying to grow, mm. etc., that just, you know, front loads a lot of cost. Mm. But the problem is, at the end of the day, then you get caught out. Mm. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, I suppose for them, maybe the, the, the way up is the, OK, so they've lost 20 million dollars. But what have they gained in their expansion? And did they, you know, have they just chalk that up as as a loss and it's fine? Or is that going to be something that's really going to hit them? I don't know. It's but it hits their reputation. Yeah, that's also true. That's the problem, right? So, yeah, like, if you seem to walk away from it, though, I've seen even I've seen on Twitter some of the tech bros. They're like they've criticized it and then gone, but you know, but you know, it is kind of hard to understand peculiarities of other other areas. And I'm mm. the, like the <laughs> defense this company gets mm. because look at the growth drives me bananas. Mm. But I also think that it will come back to bite them, really. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking specifically about Revolut, but I mean in general. The thing is, is that you, if your reputation tanks in a new market, you know, like the whole thing is, you know, when you're trying to grow, you're trying to attract customers. Mm -hmm. And if someone thinks it's unsafe, then they're not going to make that move and you're not going to grow. Mm. A, few, a few months ago, you and yours and the BBC in this country dedicated an entire program to Revolut and Fraud. Mm. The entire program was that. Mm. And I don't understand this. Mm. <laughs> I need to move on before I libel myself. <laughs> yeah, please, please, Liz. <laughs> I don't want anyway. to get divorced. <laughs> oh, I've offered. <laughs> anyway, please, please do your homework, fintech startups. Anyway, so we're going to go for a little bit, uh, some up update on some of the podcasts. So we had a little bit of a backload for Functional Banking Magic. I do apologize. We went a month without a new episode, and that was completely my fault. Um, and I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry for the fans. I'm sorry for all of you. But we have one that uh, went live last week, which is Lessons Learned from the Pandemic. And this is a report from Fair for All Finance, which is a nonprofit charity uh, with research conducted with uh, Lloyd's Banking Group, NatWest Group, and Yorkshire Building Society, looking at um, some of the measures, um, uh, the, the support that customers needed during the during the pandemic and whether we can should continue some of them post. Um, it's a really um, interesting podcast, and I, I recommend you downloading it now. Uh, so we have Catherine Rudder, uh, who is Group Ambassador for Yorkshire and the Humber uh, at Lloyd's Banking Group, and Satya Romamonit Bitch, 
uh, who is CEO of Fair for All Finance. So, and we've got another Functional Banking uh, Magic podcast um, out from the banker, which will be on the 27th uh, of this year. Now, uh, July. The 27th of July, 2023. Thank you so much. Um, so it strays a little bit about 2023. We were dedicating um, to just bank fintech uh, a theme, bank fintech themes uh, for 2023. But for this one, I actually speak to a man named Sean Hayes, who is a former banker who was sent to federal prison in the U.S. in 2018 for fraud. And he talks to me about his book, The Great Choice, which looks at the slippery slope that he slid down very quickly to with unethical uh, business practices. Mm. Uh, so coming up soon. Now, do you have an update, Kimberly? Do yes, you? yes, I do. So I, on my Disruptive Voices podcast, um, I am currently working on putting together another episode, which is looking at startups. So... So far, we've had a couple of specials recently um, where I've been at various events. I had one from the ADB, um, but this time I'm kind of focusing back again on the on the core project. And I'm just in the process of getting some dates in the diary to record those. So hopefully that episode won't be too far off if Yay. I can pin everyone down. I will already say that startup founders are much faster in responding to me than anyone else has been, <laughs> um, probably because I haven't got a wade through kind of the PR level and the... Um, external comms level it's some cases you're literally just contacting them directly so we, it's we quite don't, it's we quite don't know helpful. what you're talking about <laughs> <at all. laughs> what, what is the topic uh, so it's startup so um disruptive voices for anyone who doesn't know is um a podcast which looks at women in fintech which is something that i decided i wanted to do because just being told time and time again there aren't many women in the fintech space blah 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 which we all know is rubbish you just have to look maybe a little bit harder than some people are willing to do. And this will be, I think, the fourth episode without including the specials that I've done, which I've been to various events and spoken to, to women there. Um, and yes, so far we've kind of covered off kind of finding your tribe, really finding groups of other women working in fintech across different parts of the globe. Um, we've also looked at financial inclusion. We looked at crypto as well. Um, and yeah, so this time we're looking at the startup culture. So really trying to speak to some female founders in really early stages of creating their own fintechs and getting their feedback on their experiences, what went well, what didn't go well, what they would like to highlight would be better in the future. Everything that I have heard so far is mainly around the lack of VC and making more VC available would be great. So anyone out there with some money who would like to invest it, please find some female founders to support. They would be very grateful. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of in the works and hopefully won't be too long until it's available to download from the banker. Excellent. Please search for The Banker Podcast and you will see our full portfolio of lovely podcasts. So thank you, Kimberly. So wonderful. This sounds really good. So next week on The Banker Midweek, I'll be joined by my friend Roberta Perfetta, who is the called the prophet on fintech. Uh, she's also a judge on the uh, uh, Innovation and Digital Banking Awards, which will be announced in The Banker magazine in our September edition. Um, I'll also be joined by Victoria Clayland, Executive Director for Payments at the Bank of England, where we're going to talk a little bit about RTGS renewal and why it matters. And of course, ISO 2022 for domestic and international payments. So, Kimberly, enjoy. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Great. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.